1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. In the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Jeff Hainan. He is the author of An Uncommon Guide to Retirement, Finding God's Purpose for the Next Season of Life. And yeah, God has purpose throughout all of our days, even during that legendary retirement. He'll join us in the five o'clock hour. Well, starting with some of the day's headlines, President Trump vowed in a wide ranging interview on Fox News not to let Iran get nuclear weapons, but reiterated his reluctance to go to war. I will not let Iran um, have nuclear weapons, he told Steve Hilton, host of The Next Revolution. I don't want to fight, but you do have situations like Iran. You can't let them have nuclear weapons. You just can't let that happen. Well, early end quote. Earlier Sunday, the president tweeted that a war would result in the official end of Iran and warned the nation to never threaten the United States again. He tweeted hours after A rocket landed less than a mile from the U.S. embassy in Baghdad's heavily fortified green zone, the first such attack since September. Well, tensions between the U.S. and Iran have arisen, or rather have risen in recent weeks after the president and his administration ordered warships and bombers to the Middle East earlier this month to counter threatened attacks against U.S. interests by Iran or Iranian-backed forces. During his interview, the president also addressed the rising challenge of 2020 presidential candidates, South Bend, Indiana, Mayor Pete Buttigieg and 2020 Democratic frontrunner Joe Biden's questionable ties to China and role in the Iran nuclear deal Trump withdrew from last year. We're still months and months and months out, but lots is being said leading up to that election. What, 16, 18 months from now? Insurgent Democrat presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg acknowledged uh, at the Fox News Town Hall in Claremont, New Hampshire, Sunday that he needs to do more to appeal to black and brown voters, even as he um, uh, parried a series of policy questions and on several questions went directly after President Trump. Buttigieg argued that minority voters are skeptical of people who seem to come out of nowhere after moderator Chris Wallace noted that he was polling in 1 percent support among non-white primary voters, according to a recent poll. Buttigieg also took on the controversy newly passed pro-life legislation passed in Alabama, as well as similar bills making their way through other state legislatures. The president's tweets uh, tax hike proposal and explained his decision as a Democrat to appear on Fox News Town Hall. It seemed to me as a candidate you'd want to appear any place uh, that you're invited But that has not been the case thus far. Jimmy Carter appeared to again be a kingmaker in the race for the White House. At least three Democratic presidential hopefuls have ventured to the tiny town of Plains, Georgia, to meet with Carter. He's now 94, Rosalind 91. Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, New, uh, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, and Mayor Pete Buttigieg of South Bend, Indiana, have visited with the Carters and attended the former president's Sunday school lesson in Plains. It's quite a turnout Uh, for a man who largely receded from uh, party politics after his presidency, often without being missed by his party's leaders in Washington, where he was an outsider even as a White House resident. But time apparently heals all wounds. A top Swedish prosecutor on Monday formally asked that WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange be detained in absentia over the alleged rape of a woman in her home nearly a decade ago. The move was seen as the first step in his possible extradition from Britain. The Australian also faces a U.S. extradition warrant for allegedly conspired to hack into a Pentagon computer. And Arnold Schwarzenegger announced on Sunday that he won't press charges against the man accused of assaulting him over the weekend, A lot of you have asked, but I'm not pressing charges. The 71-year-old Terminator star tweeted, I hope this was a wake-up call and he gets uh, his life on the right track, but I'm moving on and I'd rather focus on the thousands of great athletes I met on Arnold Schwarzenegger Africa. On Saturday, a video went viral of the former Republican governor of California at an Arnold Classic Africa event in Johannesburg, South Africa, when a man rushed and drop-kicked Schwarzenegger from behind. Now, to clarify... Schwarzenegger didn't go down, but the man who kicked him in the back did. He was quickly surrounded by some very large men who apparently were there protecting the former governor. And the much-anticipated series finale of Game of Thrones, I'm glad to stop hearing about it, aired on HBO on Sunday and many... Uh, fans were uh, not impressed without giving up spoilers. That's a warning. Some fans unhappy with the untimely wound uh, uh, program uh, of the uh, Iron Throne were pretty frustrated. Other fans online have called the finale the worst episode of the entire series. Some are grouping um, end of the uh, Throne series with The Sopranos and Lost is among the worst TV finales of all time. It looks like the uh, petition demanding that HBO remake the final season with competent writers will likely get many, many more signatures. Also, apparently there was a water bottle that appeared uh, behind the leg of a chair in that final episode, sort of putting a cap on the flawed final season. And the rocket that exploded Sunday outside the U.S. Embassy in uh, Baghdad is of a design trafficked by Iran and used by Middle Eastern terrorist groups, the Washington Examiner has reported. This follows a recent Guardian report revealing that Iran's most prominent military leaders – have recently met Iraqi militia in Baghdad and told them to prepare for proxy war. Let me reach over here and grab a Kleenex. The United States agreed on Friday to lift its tariff on industrial metals from Mexico and Canada. And that clears a majority, a rather a major obstacle to congressional passage of the president's new North American trade deal. And the Treasury Department said Friday that it would not comply with congressional subpoenas to provide six years of President Trump's President Donald Trump's tax returns, of course, those six years did not span his time in uh, Washington, but uh, civilian Trump's tax returns. And Australia's prime minister, Scott Morrison, won re-election on Sunday. Stunning pollsters who had anticipated, anticipated rather, his defeat for several months. Morrison championed working class economic stability during his campaign and his victory as part of a populist trend, which now stretches across the U.S., Brazil, Hungary and Italy. And the Missouri House on Friday approved a restrictive abortion bill that would ban abortions after the eighth week of pregnancy. The bill was passed by the Senate on Thursday and now with approval from the House goes to Republican Governor Mike Parson, who is expected to sign it. And uh, buckling uh, bucking many members of his party, Louisiana Democratic Governor John Bell Howard says that he will sign an abortion restriction bill that comes to his desk should it clear the state legislature. The heartbeat bill would restrict abortions after a heartbeat is detected in the the, uh, preborn child, which is about six weeks into a pregnancy. The bill faces one final vote. In the house. And in a pilot program, approximately 30% of rapid DNA tests of immigrant adults who were suspected of arriving at the southern border with children who weren't theirs revealed the adults were not related to the children, about 30%. And men are scared of women now. LeanIn.org and SurveyMonkey's new hashtag, MentorHerb. A poll reveals Friday that 60 percent of male managers report feeling too nervous about being accused of harassment to interact with women in common workplace activities such as mentoring, socializing and one on one meetings. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show back in a moment.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back 19 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, on this day in 1873, Levi Strauss and Taylor Jacob Davis received a U.S. patent for men's work pants. Made with copper rivets. Well, you know the rest of that story. And on this day in 1927, Charles Lindbergh takes off from Roosevelt Field on Long Island, New York, aboard the Spirit of St. Louis on his historic solo flight to France. And on this day in 1932, just a few years later, Amelia Earhart takes off from Newfoundland to become the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic and in 2018, Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro wins a six-year term, but the election is disputed. Rivals disavow the results due to massive irregularities in the process, and of course, that conflict continues. Well, a 3.6 magnitude earthquake was felt by some Oregon coast residents on Sunday morning, and unlike many such quakes, this one uh, wasn't centered offshore but a bit inland. Well, the quake was recorded at 9 point, or I should say 9:23 a.m about 2.5 miles east-southeast of the town of Rose Lodge, not sure where that is, or about 26.5 miles northeast of Newport, there you go, at a depth of uh, nearly 26 miles, according to the U.S. Geological Survey and Pacific Northwest Seismic Network. The Oregonian uh, reports that minor shaking was reported along the coast from Walport to Cloverdale with scattered reports further inland. No damage was reported. The trembler uh, occurred a day after a 4.2 magnitude offshore earthquake was recorded 124 miles west of Bandon. Well, dozens of tremors recorded over the past weeks have continued to excite and confuse all of us, uh, uh, particularly those who are trimmer washers. Um, since uh, early April, patches of uh, these uh, tremors, earthquakes along the West Coast, including in the P- Puget Sound region and down through Oregon, have persisted. The strongest, according to the author of the uh, uh, the blog, uh, seems to be from the Seattle south a ways, uh, There seem to be enough tremors in these batches to represent significant slow slip, as they call it. Well, episodic tremor and slip, they've been affecting the uh, Pacific Northwest about every 14 months since at least the 90s. The name refers to a process that occurs well below Earth's surface along fault lines that form the boundaries of tectonic plates. The events involve one plate sliding over another accompanied by a tremor. Well, shaking from these events typically aren't felt, and they don't mean an earthquake is imminent. However, researchers believe the slip events are building up pressure at the fault, which will eventually lead to a long-predicted magnitude 9 earthquake. Though it appears several slip events are occurring, the latest data shows or rather doesn't seem to indicate the main event has started north of Seattle. In early April, the main event between Puget Sound and Vancouver was expected to start somewhere around July, August. Researchers began publishing findings early because of tremor activity in the spring that was uh, similar in uh, terms of characteristics. So these uh, shifts continue. They're perfectly natural, but may end up being a very strong earthquake at some point in the future that no one knows commercial airliners flying over the wider Persian Gulf could be misidentified and targeted with an increasing escalation between the U S and Iran. According to American diplomats warning on Saturday, The warning relayed by U.S. diplomatic posts from the Federal Aviation Administration stressed that the current tensions with Iran-backed militias reportedly moving missiles closer to American bases in Iraq are posing a risk to global air travel. All commercial aircraft flying over the waters of the Persian Gulf and the Gulf of Oman... Need to be aware of the ongoing escalation, the warning reads, adding that the threat presents an increasingly inadvertent risk to U.S. civil aviation operations due to the potential for miscalculation and misidentification, the warning said. It also advised that aircraft could experience interference with its navigation instruments and communications jamming with little to no warning. Well, the notice comes with heightened tensions between the two countries. The Trump administration recently ordered warships and bombers to the region. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo told the Iraqi top brass that Iran-backed militias have moved their missiles closer to bases housing Americans. And Iran's top general, a commander of Iran's extraterritorial military operations, CUD Force, meanwhile, met in recent weeks with the militias and told them to prepare for proxy war. Iran or its proxies were also blamed by the U.S. for targeting four oil tankers off the coast of the United Arab Emirates, while Iran-aligned rebels in Yemen claimed responsibility for a drone attack on a crucial Saudi oil pipeline, and that prompted Saudis to call on the United States to carry out strikes against the Iranian regime. Thus far, that hasn't happened to our knowledge other countries followed uh, suit uh, suit rather the threat uh, assessment of the United States with Britain raising threat levels for its troops in Iraq on Thursday both Germany and the Netherlands suspended a training mission in Iraq as well but the president on Tuesday appeared to downplay the escalation and denied the reports that his administration was planning to send more than 100,000 troops to the region in the wake of the heightened tensions in the region if we did that we'd send a Well, I won't use his direct language, but he said he'd send a lot more troops than that. Iran's foreign minister, Mohammad Zarif, on Thursday deemed new sanctions imposed by the administration as unacceptable, but noted that the country is committed to the nuclear deal. We believe that escalation by the United States is unacceptable and uncalled for. We have exercised maximum restraints, he said, during a visit to Iran. Well, that's uh, debatable. Nonetheless, both have dug in, the United States and Iran. Well, unreleased transcripts from secretly recorded conversations between FBI informants and ex-Trump campaign aide George Papadopoulos could be game-changing in the public, or rather if the public were ever allowed to see them. Well, that's according to former Representative Trey Gowdy. The Republican made the explosive claim during an appearance uh, Sunday morning feature suggesting it is likely the FBI would have transcripts of discussions between informants and Papadopoulos. If the Bureau is going to send in an informant, Uh, The informant's going to be wired, and if the Bureau is monitoring telephone calls, there's going to be a transcript of that. Now, was he simply stating the obvious? Uh, Gowdy, without getting into specifics, seemed to acknowledge he's at least aware of those files, suggesting they contain exculpatory information with regard to Papadopoulos, who served a brief sentence for false statements in connection with the Robert Mueller probe. Now, some of us have been, he went on to say, have been fortunate enough to know whether or not those transcripts exist. But they haven't been made public, and I think one in particular has the potential to actually persuade people, he said. Very little in this Russia probe, I'm afraid, is going to persuade people who hate Trump or love Trump. But there is some information in these transcripts that has the potential to be a game changer if it ever is made public. Now, this is a very vague statement. He's not suggesting it would exonerate Trump or that it would prove him guilty, but just offering something of a teaser if this information, which I happen to know, exists is ever made public, it will be a game changer. Will it ever be made public? Will we ever know? Uh, we don't know. He's not. He's no longer in Congress, so one might suggest perhaps he just uh, wants to speculate along with others. He continued to say that back uh, in concerns raised by Representative John Radcliffe about the origins of the Russia probe, that there is some information in these transcripts that has the potential uh, to change everything. John Radcliffe is rightfully exercised over the obligations the government has to tell the whole truth to a court, Uh, When you are speaking, um, seeking permission to spy on or surveil Americans, once again, grabbing a little Kleenex here, Uh, part of that includes a responsibility to provide exculpatory information or information that tends to show the person did not uh, do something wrong. And he added, if you have exculpatory information and you don't share it with the court, uh, that ain't good. And again, not altogether clear what he's suggesting by all of this, except there's Something of a teaser that we don't know about. In the same interview, the former congressman took aim at the unverified anti-Trump dossier author Christopher Steele, who's already been discredited. So we'll see what uh, what comes of it all. But uh, weighing in, former Congressman Gowdy. Well, the launch of a formal inquiry into the origins of the uh, Russia investigation being led by one of the Justice Department's toughest prosecutors, It's touched off a new round of behind-the-scenes finger-pointing among Obama administration officials who could have some explaining to do about efforts to surveil the Trump campaign. Now, a key dispute that flared this past week concerns whether then-FBI Director James Comey or then-CIA Director John Brennan, or both of them, pushed the unverified Steele dossier containing claims about uh, President Trump and his relationship with Russia. The dossier's more sensational claims were never substantiated by special counsel Robert Mueller's team. Amazing, James Comey says that in 2016, John Brennan insisted on including the dossier in their IC assessment. But Brennan says, no, no, Comey wanted to use the dossier. North Carolina Representative Mark Meadows, a Republican who has long demanded answers about the origins of the probe, tweeted Thursday in reference... Uh, to this uh, back and forth. Meadows added they know the truth is coming, and now they're all throwing each other under the bus. Sources familiar with the uh, records uh, told the press uh, that a late 2016 email chain indicated Comey told Bureau subordinates that Brennan insisted the dossier be included in the Intelligence Community Assessment on Russian Interference, known as ICA. That email chain has not been made public. But in a statement, Uh, Later, a former CIA official put the blame squarely on Comey. Again, the back and forth and this uh, investigation that's being conducted uh, should clarify those issues. Now, will it change anyone's view on the president's innocence or whether or not he was involved in uh, any kind of collusion remains to be seen? But nonetheless, getting to the bottom of it all is the uh, goal of yet another investigation that is ongoing and apparently has been going on for several weeks before the public was made. Aware. We're going to take a quick break here in just a moment. By the way, portions of our program today are brought to you by Liberty Coin and Currency. And later in the five o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Jeff Haynan. He's the author of An Uncommon Guide to Retirement, Finding God's Purpose for the Next Season of Life. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety-three point nine KPDQ.
2: <clears throat> Thirty-five minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. President Trump has directed former White House counsel Don McGahn to skip a House Judiciary Committee hearing scheduled for Tuesday, citing a Justice Department opinion that he cannot be compelled to testify about his official duties. In a statement that was released this afternoon, White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders blasted Democrats for continuing to pursue Trump investigations, saying they want a wasteful and unnecessary do-over in the wake of special counsel Robert Mueller's probe and describing the subpoena for McGahn as part of that. The House Judiciary Committee has issued a subpoena to try to force Mr. McGann to testify again. The Department of Justice has provided a legal opinion stating that, based on longstanding bipartisan and constitutional precedent, the former counsel to the president cannot be forced to give such testimony, and Mr. McCann has been directed to act accordingly, Sanders said. This action has been taken in order to ensure that future presidents can effectively execute the responsibilities of the office of the presidency. End quote. Well, the related uh, Department of Justice memo said McCann, like other senior advisors to a president, has immunity from being compelled to testify about his official duties. This immunity applies to the former White House counsel, according to Mr. McGann. His Uh, is not legally required to appear and testify about matters related to his official duties as counsel to the president, the memo said. Well, the New York Times first reported that the president would likely direct McCann to skip the hearing. The move could set the stage for a panel to vote to hold the former White House counsel in contempt for defying a congressionally issued subpoena. Um, The committee still intends to meet on Tuesday whether or not McCann is present, and it appears at this point he will not be. The committee announced the uh, hearing Last week, but it was unclear whether McCann would appear at that time due to ongoing uh, battles over um, or rather between congressional Democrats and the White House over that testimony earlier this month. Sanders said she didn't anticipate that a hearing would take place. We consider this to be a case closed and we've moved forward to do the work of the American people. She said speaking on ABC News, the committee led by Chairman uh, Jared Nadler subpoenaed McCann on the 22nd of April, days after the release of the special counsel's report, which featured McCann prominently in a section related to the obstruction of justice inquiry. This included a claim that McCann disobeyed Trump's call to have him seek a Mueller removal. On the 17th of June in 2017, the President called White House Counsel Don McCann at home and directed him to call the Acting Attorney General and say that the special counsel had conflicts of interest and must be removed. McCann did not carry out that directive. Uh, However, decided that he would resign rather than trigger what he regarded as a potential Saturday night massacre of the report stated referencing the Watergate scandal. The report also revealed that when the media reported on the president's request, the president directed White House officials to tell McGahn to dispute the story and create a uh, record stating he has uh, not been ordered to have the special counsel removed. He did not. Well, the House committee subpoena. Uh, Coming amid a fight over access to the unredacted Mueller report, called for McCann to appear before the panel to testify and provide documents related to the Mueller investigation. But earlier this month, now White House counsel Pat Cipollone first notified the committee that McCann would not be allowed to comply with the subpoena, saying requests for documents and materials must go to the White House. The White House provided those records to Mr. McCann in connection with its cooperation with the special counsel's investigation and with clear understanding that the records remain subject to the control of the White House for all purposes. The White House records remain legally protected from disclosure under longstanding constitutional principles because they implicate significant executive branch uh, confidentiality, interests and executive privilege. So uh, that is what the current um, legal counsel is saying. And, of course, that will not be the end of this very long uh, and sordid story. Well, it's been almost two years since the U.S. and China entered negotiations, and those talks are still dragging on. No one knows the true progress of these talks, except for what's been reported through anonymous sources or the occasional update from the White House. But as things stand, the talks have not sufficed to stave off a trade war. Keep in mind, June 1st, that's when these new tariffs are supposed to kick in from both sides. The Office of the U.S. Trade Representative has already begun the process of levying a 25 percent tax on all things Americans buy from China. As far as anyone knows, tensions are escalating and Americans can expect to see current tariffs stay in place for at least another month, at least and even up to five more years This process was always going to be difficult given the Trump administration's desire to get China to change its ways, not just the tariffs, but the theft of intellectual property and much more. But the obstacles of reaching an agreement and removing the tariffs may not be the agreement itself, but may be coming from Washington just as much as from Beijing. American analysts are all over the map in terms of how the U.S. should handle these negotiations, and their uh, their views don't neatly conform to uh, party alliances. There is a division among those who are hawkish, uh, taking a more confrontational approach that opposes any commercial activity with China. And those who believe that governors, governments, rather, including the U.S. government, should get out of the way of the free flow of goods and services, even if it does mean China has access to things that it doesn't um, own. Well, to the extent this latter group recognizes China's abuses, they prefer to address them within the rules and processes of the World Trade Organization. The former group, which cares little about the World Trade Organization, even decries it as um, supposedly ineffective. Well, it certainly has been up to this point in addressing those broader concerns. Well, between these groups are those who support the president's aggressive approach to China. These tend to be experts in their field, either in political science or security, but not economics. The debate between the political scientists and, econ- and economists rather, over the president's trade tactics tend to boil down to a debate over negotiating tactics versus economic costs. And then there are the hard bargainers, often made up of trade lawyers. This group ranges from protectionists to those seeking genuine change in China's treatment of trade and investment. They ultimately want a deal, albeit a very tough one. They align with the Hawks in their low regard to the World Trade Organization, yet they're not naive enough to expect or desire any kind of decoupling of the United States and Chinese economies. Even within those various groups, debates are being um, had over the time value of negotiations and the degree of economic pain. One popular argument is that short-term pain will lead to long-term gain. That, it seems to me, is what the president is counting on. Another argument is that in the long term, China's economy will endure more pain than the United States. Yet either way, the U.S. economy still gets hurt. The experts also uh, they're also hindered in their advice to the president by their own apparent misunderstanding of U.S.-China economic relationships or relations, whether it's talking about the trade deficit with China or um, what sort of impact trade actually has on U.S. and Chinese economies or the effects tariffs are having on either of, uh, of our economies. The president seems misinformed. This comes at a cost because despite strong U.S. economic growth, With 3.2% annual growth for the first uh, three months of 2019, tariffs are still imposing a $1.4 billion per month loss for the U.S. economy. Meanwhile, China's growth has been steady at 6.4%. Well, over the last few um, few months, the media has closely covered the U.S.-China trade negotiations. I mean, as much as is possible, U.S. and China officials they uh, uh, they've made several trips to visit one another. Yet, most of the news covering those negotiations tends to come from anonymous sources. Even official sources seem to be unreliable. And. Um, in guiding um, what's actually happening uh, in those trade relations. Just days after Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin tweeted about how productive the negotiations were, the president contradicted him, not in a practice that we're unfamiliar with, setting up a new wave of trade tensions between the U.S. and China. Well, as of the first of this month, the U.S. has imposed 25 percent tariffs on 50 billion of Chinese goods, 10 percent tariffs on 200 billion dollars of Chinese goods, Uh, China has imposed 25 percent tariffs on 50 billion of U.S. exports and between 5 to 10 percent tariffs on 60 billion of U.S. goods, totaling 110 billion. Well, as of the first of next month, as I mentioned, the U.S. is going to impose 25 percent tariffs on all 250 billion dollars worth of imports. While China, they're set to increase their tariffs on the 60 billion dollars worth of U.S. goods between 5 to 25 percent. Also, the U.S. has begun the process of imposing a tariff of 25 percent on an additional 300 billion dollars worth of Chinese imports. Any certainty we thought we had about process and progress and negotiations is now shut down. Neither side has plans to hold official visits at this time. The next time the president and Chinese President Xi Jinping is going to meet is at the G20 summit in Osaka, Japan at the end of June. And, of course, that's after these uh, new tariff hikes have been imposed. This um, may be a positive meeting; It may go absolutely nowhere. No one at this point actually knows. Well, in addition to keeping an eye on uh, China's uh, uh, economics, when the State Department recently released its 2018 Country Reports on Human Rights Practices, China figured prominently in its findings, but not in a good way. The annual report, it was issued on the 13th of March, It shines a pretty harsh spotlight on China and its various human rights abuses, including religious persecution, internment of the uh, Uyghurs in uh, re-education camps, and increased surveillance of its citizens. Many assume that China's rapid economic transformation would have led automatically to improvements in civil liberties and human rights, but instead China has become more oppressive. What's taking place today in uh, Xi Jinping's uh, China looks a lot like Mao Zedong, observers uh, point out in the Cultural Revolution and in modern China, the state is equipped with far more advanced and invasive technology to achieve its totalitarian aims. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Fifty minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Jeff Haynen. His book is titled An Uncommon Guide to Retirement, Finding God's Purpose in the Next Season of Life. Looking forward to that conversation. Well, the State Department report highlighted a number of China's draconian practices. The report describes China's crackdown on extremism, which resulted in the detention since 2017 of 800,000 to possibly more than 2 million Uyghurs, ethnic Kazakhs and other Muslims in transformation through education centers. These so-called re-education centers are designed to instill patriotism and fidelity to the state above ethnic and religious loyalty. These practices were labeled among the worst abuses since the 1930s. Well, in its 2018 regulations on religious affairs, China conflates all religion with extremism and sees religious fasting, praying, abstaining from alcohol in the same light. So it doesn't matter how innocuous one's uh, religious practice might be, it is considered Uh, Outside of what is acceptable there. Well, the monitor for those behaviors. China uses various forms of surveillance, including Internet monitoring, video surveillance, a double linked household system in which citizens are encouraged to spy on one another. Beyond the uh, repression of minority and religious groups, draconian surveillance efforts affect all Chinese citizens. The State Department report notes that continued application and development of a social credit system that monitors academic records, traffic violations, social media presence, quality of friendships, adherence to birth control regulations, employment performance, consumption habits and other topics. As the system becomes more advanced, the government has become more aggressive in implementing these repercussions. Uh, Chinese state media claims that 11 million air travel trips have now been uh, blocked due to citizens' low social credit scores. You have to earn the right to travel from one place to another. The report also examines China's newest efforts at Internet suppression, including the creation of the Cyberspace Administration of China, which shut down an estimated 128,000 websites in 2017. Additionally, platforms like Google, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, as well as any information on topics on Taiwan, Uh, The Dalai Lama, the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre are all banned from the Internet. It's now estimated the government employs tens of thousands of individuals to restrict and monitor Internet content, as well as to promote state propaganda. China's Internet influence extends beyond its borders and has far-reaching ramifications for its relations to other nations as well. Recently, Mercedes-Benz was forced to apologize to Chinese consumers after quoting the Dalai Lama in an Instagram post. Instead, of Western companies exerting influence over China to liberalize its totalitarian system, we see the very opposite occurring. Delta Air, uh, for example, Spanish fashion retailer Zara were compelled to apologize to China after listing Tibet, Hong Kong, Macau and Taiwan as countries independent from China. This uh, influence likewise extends to Hollywood, where the influence of Chinese censors has led to script changes in multiple blockbuster movies so as to steer clear of topics politically sensitive. Uh, to Chinese patrons. Conversely, China seems to have no problem producing movies that seek to promote Chinese foreign policy and anti American sentiment. An example of this is the Chinese box office record breaker Wolf Warrior 2, that contains highly anti American content and is essentially China's version of Sylvester Stallone's anti Soviet Russia Rambo series of the 80s. Well, due to China's large and Dynamic global economy, technological advances, influence over foreign investors, Beijing has been able to take its level of state control to citizens to a whole new level. Additionally, because the success of its pseudo-communist economy on the world stage, other nations have been forced to submit to its strict censorship laws. While the U.S. should consider carefully steps it can take to hold China accountable for the severe human rights violations that are currently taking place, thus far we've been relatively unsuccessful uh, trying to uh, hold China back in other areas, but not only because it's the right thing to do, but because if left unchecked, Beijing's draconian policies will continue to impede freedom far beyond its borders. And the State Department is continuing to monitor. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo set out a new U.S. agenda for the Arctic and warned allies about China's growing influence in that region. In a speech that was delivered the day before the 11th Arctic Council ministerial meeting on the 7th of May and finland pompeo explained how the arctic region is changing saying the arctic is at the forefront of opportunity and abundance citing the untapped oil and gas rare earth minerals and other resources there pompeo also pointed to the rapid in, rapidly increasing strategic significance of the arctic ocean as reductions in sea ice creates new shipping lanes that could become the 21st century suez and panama canals slashing travel times between asia and the west well, given these developments in the Arctic, the Arctic Council states, Canada, Denmark, Finland, Iceland, Norway, Russia and Sweden, along with the United States, need to define the terms of international participation in the region. Providing one such vision in his speech, the secretary said that all nations, including non-Arctic nations, should have a right to engage peacefully in that region, But all the parties in the marketplace have to play by those same rules those who violate those rules should lose their rights to participate in that marketplace respect and transparency are the price of admission Well, if the U.S. and its Arctic partners do not define the terms of international participation in the Arctic, other actors will. In fact, some are already at work in the region and doing just that. Russia springs to mind. Even as the U.S. advocates respect and transparency in the Arctic, China is making massive investments in that region, $90 billion between 2012 and 2017 alone, according to Pompeo and is already developing shipping lanes in Arctic in the Arctic Ocean. Observers should be skeptical that Chinese investment in the region is benign when experience shows be- Beijing's investments elsewhere have been anything but. While well, experts have documented the problems associated with Chinese investments, from uh, Chinese firms' failure to meet safety and environmental standards, to bribery of foreign government officials, to unsustainable lending uh, that has left countries from Montenegro to the Maldives, Uh, At risk of debt distress, global investment is become is rather welcome in the Arctic, but not uh, ecologically harmful investment or when initiated by uh, or with obscure contracts and uncertain intentions. China's pattern of aggressive behavior elsewhere should inform uh, what uh, we do and how it might uh, treat uh, the Arctic if it is allowed to continue unchecked. Well, the May 7th council meeting itself was a success in that it uh, brought together its member states with a permanent uh, participation to discuss ongoing priorities, such as protecting marine ecosystems and improving the quality of life for Arctic residents there. Iceland is now assuming the chairmanship of the uh, Council for the next two years. With Iceland as an important U.S. ally and a member of NATO, its chairmanship presents an opportunity for the U.S. to advance its Arctic agenda and they need to work um, to carry out a common vision for that region. Capital wave strategist um, Shah Jilani, uh pointed out that the U.S. birth rate hit a 32-year low in 2018, which could spell trouble for population social programs for older Americans like Social Security and Medicare. There are implications when people decide to either abort their children or simply not to have them at all. According to data from the National Center for Health Statistics at the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention, about 3.79 million babies were born in the U.S. last year. That's down 2% from the year before. At the same time, the fertility rate dropped to a record low, remaining below the replacement level needed to maintain the population at current levels. Now, these new figures released uh, last Wednesday mark the continuation of downward trends that have been occurring for a number of years, It will also exacerbate the fact that the U.S. is already considered an aging society, where there are more older people than young ones. And according to predictions from U.S. um, Census, uh, one in every five U.S. citizens will be aged 65 or older by 2030. At the same time, population growth was expected to be meaningfully slow between 2017 and 2060. As a result, social programs that rely on workers paying into them through income taxes to support aging Americans – could experience an even bigger financial strain. All past projections of the proportion of the U.S. population that will be elderly and eligible for Medicare and Social Security have assumed that the previous higher birth rates remained constant. John Rowe, a professor of health policy and aging health policy and management, uh, says, as uh, rates have fallen and fewer young people ultimately enter the labor force and pay into Social Security and Medicare trust funds, the solvency of these funds is threatened. Earlier this year, the Social Security and Medicare trustee reports said Social Security's reserves are expected to be depleted in 2035, at which time only 80 percent of benefits will be payable. Medicare's hospital insurance trust fund is expected to run out of money in seven years. The Social Security Administration has already said both programs would experience cost growth in excess of GDP growth as baby boomers retire. About 10,000 people turn 65 every day and the lower birth rate generation enters employment. But if the downward trends in birth rate and fertility continue, solvency problems could be even worse than what experts have forecast. I guess it's time to be fruitful and multiply. Five o'clock, we've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, about six minutes after five o'clock. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. Well, the Senate in the state of Maine has passed a bill that would that would award the state's electoral college votes to the winner of the national popular vote in a presidential election. The Banger Daily News reports that the state chamber approved the bill in a 1916 vote on Tuesday of last week. It passed by the uh, State House and signed by uh, Maine Governor Janet Mills. The state would uh, become the latest to join the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, which is an agreement among a number of states to give the Electoral College, or at least their Electoral College votes, to whichever presidential candidate wins the popular vote. It's a way of undermining the Electoral College without actually amending the Constitution. So far, 14 states and Washington, D.C., have joined that pact, which will only take effect if a number of states holding the majority of the Electoral College's 538 electoral votes join the agreement. Since the formal body was created in 1787, there have only been five instances where a presidential candidate has been elected without winning the popular vote. President Trump was the most recent to win the office without winning the popular vote. During the 2016 election, he lost the popular vote to former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton by three million votes. However, Trump won the election after he managed to secure 304 electoral votes. Well, according to the local paper, the measure has faced some criticism from conservatives who argue the bill will minimize Maine's voice in the presidential election, which is precisely the purpose of the Electoral College, so that some states are not outsized in their influence and smaller states have a a voice. Well, Oregon Democrats hailed an historic moment on Monday when the state Senate voted along party lines to approve billions of dollars in new business taxes, money earmarked for the state's struggling education system. The bill became law Thursday with Governor Kate Brown's signature, but that doesn't necessarily mean the tax will take effect as scheduled in January. Supporters and opponents of the tax agree it's likely to end up before voters in a special election, probably at the beginning of next year. Oregon voters rejected a similar gross receipts tax just three years ago when they voted down Measure 97. Opponents say they expect the same result this time. We strongly believe this tax can be beat at the ballot, Sean Gillians, Executive Director of Oregon Manufacturers and Commerce, which is rallying an effort to put the tax before the voters. The question really comes down to whether or not there are enough financial resources available to run the type of campaign we would need to run, Gillians wrote in an email. We've had some very positive conversations on that front over the last two weeks. It's very expensive to put a matter on the ballot and then to champion that during a campaign season it's expensive and exhausting. And while both this spring's tax bill and measure 97 levy taxes on businesses business sales rather within Oregon there were a big or there are big differences between the two proposals and that could produce a different reaction from voters. So both of these uh, tax bills were introduced in the spring but there are some differences at 2 billion dollars over each um, Two-year budget cycle, House Bill 3427, is just a third the size of Measure 97. That may make a difference to voters. The business community united in opposition to Measure 97. It's split over this new tax. Manufacturers and some other groups are fiercely critical. Nike is strongly in favor of it. And the state's largest business organization has agreed to remain neutral. So that could make a difference. Also, critics of both Measure 97 and the new business tax note it will um, produce a pyramiding effect as the tax piles up uh, as uh, products move through an industry supply chain to partially offset that for consumers, lawmakers included, a 0.25% point percentage point reduction in personal income taxes in three of Oregon's four tax brackets. And most significantly, perhaps lawmakers dedicated the new tax specifically to education instead of the state's amorphous general fund. That, too, might make a difference. Well, out of the gate, voters are going to think it's a tax on businesses and it's going to be their number one priority, education. Uh, The director of political research at the Oregon polling firm DHM Research his firm has worked with uh, business organizations and education advocates in the past, but anticipate supporters of this tax will hire them in uh, on this issue should it make its way onto the ballot. Measure 97 lost in a landslide with nearly 60 percent of Oregon voters opposed, while uh, Horvick declined to handicap the new tax chances at the ballot box. He did say its differences uh, from Measure 97 give it a better chance. Any observer would have to say that uh, is the case. And again, it's uh, not set that it will be on the ballot yet, but it's very likely to be there. And you'll have an opportunity to vote on it and to consider the differences between this new version and the measure 97, which voters uh, voters turned down. Well, the city of Portland will pay to repair the damage caused by a ruptured water main that flooded more than a dozen northeast Portland homes. That's according to Commissioner Amanda Fritz. Speaking on Friday, Fritz said she and uh, Mayor Ted Wheeler conferred and agreed that although the city may not be technically liable for the damage, it should make the homeowners whole. It's not clear how much the city will pay. Uh, Fritz said she serves on the water com- uh, as the water commissioner. The city council will be asked to approve the payments, and a vote is not scheduled just yet. Her announcement comes one day after Michael Stewart, the Portland Water Bureau director, said his agency felt, agency felt bad about the damage caused by the burst pipe. The rupture was unforeseeable. The 30-inch cast-iron water main broke without warning on the 16th of March and gushed some 40,000 gallons a minute. That's a minute uh, onto Saban neighborhood streets before being brought under control hours later. You consider 40,000 gallons a minute brought under control Hours later, homeowners reported their basements were flooded, some with more than two feet of water. One said the damage would cost about $75,000 to repair. Property owners reportedly had their insurance claims denied because they do not have flood coverage. Uh, none had opted for that coverage because their homes aren't within a floodplain. Uh, the city risks management, risk management to office also denied the homeowners damage claims, saying the city was not responsible for the busted pipe and subsequent deluge. Several homeowners had threatened to file suit over the denials. But now the city is uh, apparently going to pay something. The question is now, just how much? And research published by the Pew Charitable Trust shows that Oregon tax revenues are nearly 30% higher than the pre-recession peak. Only one other state has bigger growth in tax revenue. Why isn't it enough? Even a gusher in tax revenues, to make my point from the earlier story, can't keep pace with government spending in Oregon. Despite a booming economy with record low unemployment, the number of people on the Oregon Health Plan has nearly doubled from pre recession. Levels Over the same period, the annual cost of public employee retirement system has grown by 60 percent, grown by 60 percent, or double the rate of tax revenues. Nearly every problem with state and local uh, budgets can be traced to PERS costs and Medicaid expansion. The budget problems are spending problems, not revenue problems. And while we recovered from the last recession, our elected officials are making dangerous decisions today that will lead to devastation when the next recession hits, and it will hit, If our government can't balance the books during a boom, we can't survive a bust, and one will in fact come. Eric Fruits, who's a Ph.D., is the vice president of research at Cascade Policy Institute, Oregon's free market public policy research organization, warning and explaining that uh, record revenue is just not enough because Oregon has a spending problem rather than a revenue problem. And the keynote speaker at Morehouse College commencement ceremony announced a grant on Sunday wiping out the student debt of the entire 2019 graduating class. Billionaire Robert Smith's surprise gift in front of nearly 400 graduating seniors may be worth about $40 million, officials say. My family is going to create a grant to eliminate your student loan, Smith said. Uh, Your uh, great Morehouse men are bound only by the limits of your own conviction and creativity. Uh, His uh, son is a member of the class of 2019, uh, 2019, estimated that his student loans uh, totaled about $70,000, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. She said, I feel like it's Mother's Day all over again. The announcement elicited the biggest cheers of the morning. No big surprise there. 15 minutes after 5 o'clock. Up next, we'll talk with Jeff Haynan. An uncommon guide to retirement, finding God's purpose for the next season of life.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You know, people want to retire someday, but what does that mean exactly? We're all talking about retirement like it's supposed to be an endless vacation, but what if. Like the majority of those facing retirement, you can't afford that kind of luxury. Or what if you just want something more from retirement? Some advocate for no retirement at all, but you've worked hard for decades, perhaps, and arrest and reprieve sounds like a a good idea. It's very appealing. What should you do? Well, my next guest has written a book, An Uncommon Guide to Retirement. Does God have a purpose for our retirement? Well, he says, yes, he does. Well, you can learn how to discern what it is by taking an uncommon approach. In the book, An Uncommon, or rather, In An Uncommon Guide to Retirement, Jeff Hanson, or Hannon, he looks biblically and practically at the need for rest and purpose in retirement and teaches you Uh, how to take a sabbatical rest in early retirement, and much more. Planning retirement doesn't have to be distressing. Retire in a way that is God-honoring, purpose-filled, restful, and truly biblical. Well, my guest is the founder and executive director of Denver Institute for Faith and Work, an educational nonprofit that explores issues of faith, work, calling, and culture. He is a regular contributor to Christianity Today and has written numerous articles on finance, character, work, and Calling. He's a nationally recognized voice on the intersection between faith and work, and I'm so delighted to have um, Mr. Jeff Hainan with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, hey, Georgie. This is an important subject because, um, especially in our culture, we aspire to retire. Uh, is it, is it a, a uniquely Western concept that retirement is what we are entitled to at the end of our work life, And it is a panacea where we essentially are no longer accountable or responsible and we can just do whatever we please. Or is that a a concept that uh, we find in other places around the world? Yeah,
3: well, actually, we do see it in other places around the world. You see uh, in China, uh, there's a whole bunch of pensioners over age 65. Actually, Japan is one of the oldest uh, countries in the world. You see it across uh, uh, Europe as well as in the United States, too. It tends to be more of a developed world conversation, Mm -hmm. uh, less of a developing world conversation. But it definitely is a conversation that as the world has gotten richer. This is becoming just a a norm of people thinking about, you know, retirement as this never-ending vacation.
2: Now, the subtitle of your book is Finding God's Purpose for the Next Season of Life, which implies, quite frankly, that God does have intention for the latter years of our lives, whether we're working for uh, pay or not. What does the Bible have to say about these latter years, and what might we expect in terms of our being productive for the kingdom and uh, and useful in other ways?
3: You know, I think a really under, uh, under-talked-about uh, topic uh, in our churches is the idea of becoming elders. So not only an elder in a local church or an office of a church, but historically, even the elders of Israel, there are people of wisdom and influence that uh, ruled, and didn't necessarily do the heavy lifting of the young soldiers, but they certainly— uh, uh, exerted influence on a coming generation. Uh, so I think the Bible has a lot to say about uh, rest, uh, renewing the heart as you move into retirement, and reengaging as elders that are are not as interested in sort of just the, the retreat from life kind of mentality, but are reengaging in a way uh, that allows others to lead, but also they're leading as well.
2: As we're exploring retirement in the 21st century that's pleasing to God, where should we begin? Yeah,
3: that's a good question. You know, in my book, uh, I recommend that for those who can, and usually when you start taking some sort of a pension, even if it's Social Security, I recommend that people start thinking uh, about retirement um, by taking a sabbatical rest. So a lot of folks have worked for a long time. It could be as a mechanic, it could be as a teacher, and really haven't had an extended season of pause and of rest. I think it's really important to reorient the heart toward God, to trust, to find our identity in Him first, uh, and then to take enough time to listen to God's call, because God might be calling you to work full-time or part-time or to sit with a friend dying of cancer uh, or to take care of grandkids. I think there could be a lot of pathways forward, but I really think the concept of uh, rest and re-engagement is important.
2: We don't honor our elders like other cultures have and like we used to here uh, we oftentimes look at older people as no longer being useful. Do you think we have a problem in recognizing the value of those who are at retirement age and who might uh, want to re-engage but don't see the opportunities um, that they should?
3: Yeah, I think you're right. I think what we do is we segregate. We, we segregate in our churches uh, via age oftentimes, uh, as well as in our culture. And so uh, people that are older, you know, live in your retirement community or move off to the side of communities rather than right at the center, which was more of a historical view. Mm-hmm. So I do think there is a, uh, I do think there is a big issue of how we see age. And, I, you know, you also see this too with uh, anti-aging creams and all sorts of other things that really see aging as a problem to be solved or, or, or a fix to be, to be fixed uh, in medicine. Uh, and the reality is we're all getting older uh, and this is not some problem to be solved. This is something to be embraced as, we're humans, we're mortals, uh, yet uh, aging is a part of God's purpose.
2: Mm. Before we talk about what retirement should look like and how we can approach it, let's consider for a moment what is lost when we disregard those who have a lifetime of wisdom and uh, mm. have the the capacity to have influence but are, are either uh, sidelined by their own decisions or are sidelined because their value is not recognized. What do we lose when we don't cooperate with those who are retiring and ready to serve.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's a good word. I I think we lose a tremendous amount when we don't do this. We lose wisdom from previous generations. You actually, uh, there's some studies out there uh, that in many ways, the very young and and, and the old were meant for each other. There's opportunities for mentoring and for caring for one another uh, and interdependence rather than sort of this vision of unfettered independence that we really overlook. So uh, one of the parts of my book I talk about family, and I think not enough of us are, are really intentional are the legacy we want to leave behind. And If any of us have had a grandma or grandpa that's really been influential, you know think about think about an entire country or even a world of people saying I'm going to leave behind something better. I care not only about my life but about generations to come and I'm going to invest my days in that. There's a lot to be uh, a lot to be lost, but also a lot to be had for those that do re-engage and saying I have much to give.
2: You begin in your first chapter by uh, quoting from Psalm 92, 12 through 14. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. I mean, what a lovely thought that our latter years are not to just simply um, to be wild away, but that there is purpose in God's kingdom for us if we... Acknowledge His Word and seek Him first, even in that season, to see where He might lead us. You write about uh, um, decoding the culture of retirement and that there are four postures. We've talked about, you know, this notion of let's vacation. But what are some of the other very common um, uh, views on the culture of retirement? Yeah, good
3: question. So yeah, that first one is uh, most common is let's vacation. That sees retirement as never-ending vacation that really doesn't satisfy. The second one I talk about is that the majority of Americans can't afford that. that there's a lot of folks that haven't saved, according to financial planners, uh, enough for retirement and, and end up feeling quite resentful. And you have to ask the question, then what do I do right now if I don't have – I can't afford the vacation? Uh, the third view that I talk about um, uh, is uh, never retire is not biblical. So, of course, that's true. The concept of retirement is, uh, is a new construct. Having said that, what's also not biblical is exhausted souls and exhausted lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of people that have uh, either either overworked or haven't had the opportunity not to work. Uh, and there's, I think, uh, a deep need in our culture for a rebalancing of work and rest. Uh, and then the fourth view I talk about is um, vacation isn't as satisfying as world changing. So there is a there's a there's a good movement uh, in many ways out there toward kind of civic uh, engagement and volunteering and changing communities in retirement. But one of the things I question in this is we really got to take a look at the purpose because a lot of people move from a career they didn't like and they get into volunteering, working for perhaps, you know, a nonprofit, and they realize the same problems follow them, the same lack of meaning. Uh, and we have to really recognize that meaning uh, doesn't ultimately come from our work or our volunteering. Uh, it comes uh, for the reason why we're doing it. So, uh, each of those four I kind of push on in the book and suggest an uncommon way forward.
2: Yeah, yeah. I love that you write retirement may be just the opportunity to reassess these foundations of a fruitful life. And again, we don't often think about our latter years as being fruitful, but we have the potential and the opportunity to bear fruit that remains in ways that our working life did not afford.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think there is a lot of opportunities for people to reassess and say, well, what what do I want to do? How do I? What kind of a legacy do I want to live? Uh, and what do I want to leave behind me in retirement? And uh, for those that are willing to say, hey. Uh, yes, let's take a vacation, but not thinking that the vacation is necessarily going to fill us. Uh, there's opportunities to reassess saying, what do I want to leave behind me when I'm gone?
2: Yeah. We're talking about the book, An Uncommon Guide to Retirement, Finding God's Purpose for the Next Season of Life. My guest is uh, Jeff Haynan. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Jeff Hainan. He is the author of an uncommon guide to retirement: Finding God's Purpose for the Next Season of Life. The question we often ask is, "Does God have purpose for me in my latter years?" And this bu- this book answers from a biblical perspective that answer or that question rather in the if- affirmative. So I'm, I'm excited to uh, consider that more and more of us are thinking about retirement. Uh, as a, a means of extending our purpose and uh, and influence, now we talked right before the break about uh, how we um, often look at uh, retirement in various ways, some unbiblical, some less productive than we might imagine, and that uh, endless vacation isn 't the panacea we might imagine. You write in your second chapter about sabbath there is a there is a, a prescription for a, a thorough rest, and that's an appropriate way to begin one's retirement, but it's not uh, the the way to uh, continue throughout uh, whatever number of years one might have. Describe what a Sabbath is in the context of retirement. Yeah, so
3: in my book I talk about Sabbath not only in terms of one day of rest out of every seven, but the concept of a sabbatical. So a lot of folks have, unless you a pastor or academic, probably haven't thought necessarily of taking a sabbatical, but I think it's a deeply biblical idea. In Leviticus 25, there's this idea of letting the land lay fallow for one year out of seven. And in that year was a time of remembering, of recentering our identity as God's people who are saved out of slavery from Egypt, of really refocusing our hearts and minds on God and trusting Him for provision for the future. Um, So there is a way to think about, I think, early retirement, less in terms of vacation and trying to vacate all the things we didn't like about our career, but more in terms of uh, moving into sabbatical rest. Um, in a way that can renew the heart, uh, heal past wounds, seek God's voice and His call for the next season of life.
2: Mm. And that's uh, an important element, too, is this calling. Um, it, when we're younger, we tend to seek God and His calling on our life. We may feel that once our work life has ended, uh, and I'm referring to our employment, that that calling has come to a close as well. Uh, how do we pursue uh, an understanding of God's calling on our life in that season, uh, particularly if it differs from what we may have uh, felt called to uh, during our working years.
3: Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think some of the language around calling our culture needs a little bit of myth busting,
2: <laughs> yes, uh, in
3: many different <laughs> ways. Calling oftentimes sounds like that ideal job, but the reality is none of us have ever had an ideal job. There's always problems, and there's thorns and thistles and whatever we've done. The highest call in the Bible is to love your Lord, your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength, and to love your neighbor self. So I think if we take us about a caress and reorienting the heart and the mind to a God and His purposes, and caring for the well-being of others, I think that sets the foundation of my retirement is not about self-actualization. It's about surrender. It's about self-surrender to God and His purposes. And then doors can, I think, begin to open up, and when we start to talk about calling, we can start to ask questions like, okay, God, as I look out in the world, where does it seem that you're at at work? Uh, We can ask questions about, like, what talents and skills and and networks do i have to leverage for his kingdom we also need to ask questions about pain and suffering i think that's one of the big things that the elders in our community can offer is all of the difficulty and the pain that they've experienced and offer those not only back to christ in worship but to their neighbors and saying this is what i've experienced this is this is who i've become and that is a way of kind of giving uh, wisdom and blessing to our community as well so I think there is an opportunity also. A lot of folks um, that I interviewed for the book, um, they use retirement as a, as a chance to pick up sort of the what I call the pearls uh, of their calling throughout their career. If you look at your life experiences and the things that you've done and where God's used you in the past, look at all these pearls on a string. You can say, okay, what are the pearls and how do they seem to be lining up? Um, and oftentimes there is continuity between those pearls and what God is calling you to in the next season of life.
2: One of the thing you uh, things you write about is um, writing your eulogy and your future. You, you consider what you would like to have left and then what is necessary in order to achieve the very things um, that would take you to that, that point at the end of life.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I write about that in the book, and it's a little morbid, right, to think about when you're in a coffin who's going to get your stuff and what are people going to say about you when you're gone. But that day is coming for absolutely all of us. And that is something to think about is what you're going to leave in your wake and what kind of a legacy. Um, there's an activity, I think, that's pretty simple that a lot of folks can do. And I lead an educational nonprofit. We actually have young professionals write their eulogy as well mm-hmm. of saying, what do you want to leave behind? And think about the different roles that God has placed you in. So as as a worker, for me, a husband, as a father, as a son, what do you want to leave behind? And As I uh, wrote a eulogy, I I realized I wanted to leave behind uh, a network of institutions and people committed to healing Christ's broken world. As a writer, I wanted to leave behind a written testimony to Christ's great love for the world. And as a husband and father, I wanted to leave behind a family committed to loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving the neighbors as themselves. So it's a simple activity, but thinking about OK, even looking at your night, what would your 90 year old self say to how you're making decisions today? It's a humbling question, but one that can really clarify what's important and what's not.
2: Yeah. And then you ask the question, what does that mean for my work? Are the things that I'm doing leading to that um, that eulogy or is it just a pipe dream that has no relationship to my priorities, how I spend my time, what I do with my resources? And it is a very sobering thought. Am I working toward the very thing I say I aspire to be?
3: Yeah, I read about that in both the chapter in work as well as in time. Uh, Time changes a lot in retirement. You have a lot more time than you ever had before. And I say that it can sometimes feel like uh, jumping off a moving train, all things come to kind of a halt. And it kind of feels like moving time is like a lava lamp, days blobbing into weeks into months. I think it's really important to sort of say time is a gift. God has given us time uh, for the sake of him and his kingdom and serving those he loves. And to start to reorient some of our time saying, okay, if I've said this, if I've said this about my calling, this is what I want to do. Like what's the deadline? Who are, who are the communities that are helping keep me accountable? Where are the people that are either encouraging more toward just self-focused pleasure or, or really fruitful ways of caring for the world around us? I think uh, the communities we, resound- we surround ourselves with are also really important.
2: Mm-hmm. You also rightly put this into uh, the context of being older, um, that society doesn't often provide flexible arrangements to work in retirement, that health and family issues can impact our work more frequently in retirement. Ageism is a reality that social class and income will deeply impact your view of work in retirement uh, and so on. So, um, again, you encourage us to think about what that time in life uh, is what the challenges might be and how that can uh, propel us forward in following God's plan for that season in life. Yeah,
3: yeah, I do write about that. Honestly, working at, in retirement, it could be sixties, it could even be seventies. It's oftentimes a strange fit. So there is oftentimes not uh, very good, even flexible retirement uh, plans that organizations or companies have. Oftentimes, it's, uh, it's your retirement party and you're working full time now. There's nothing there, whereas a lot of people would want to maybe work part-time, there isn't some of those options. And so you go back and say, hey, I want to work 20 or 30 hours or even 15 hours, uh, and seasoned professionals then have to take entry-level jobs that are more like part-time jobs. So we're in a season uh, in our culture and our cultural history where retirement in sometime in your 60s, this is not really old age. That's actually mm-hmm. a very different season of life. You have to prepare for 20 or 30 years now of, of living in life, but a lot of work situations uh, and, um, uh, kind of even cultural institutions are really focused on sort of this idea of retirement as complete cessation of work, which a lot of people, uh, aren't interested in. So there's opportunities. There are good questions to ask about work, part-time, full-time, which be paid, non-paid work. What is the actual context of reality? When do I mm-hmm. have to work? Cause I need to for money and God can meet us even in all the difficulties and pains of that. Um, but the reality is oftentimes it is just, There's challenges. There's real-life difficulties in thinking about work and retirement.
2: Yeah, yeah. The second part of your book focuses on wisdom. And while growing older, one might assume wisdom just naturally falls to us. Uh, Wisdom, like so many of the things we've been talking about, really requires intentionality. Uh, So you write about time, health, learning, mentoring, and so on. How important is wisdom, and how do we assure that we are acquiring wisdom and applying it in these latter years so that our retirement, in quotes, Uh, really does reflect God's purpose for this next season of life.
3: Yeah, in one chapter I talk about learning, um, and I think learning and wisdom are closely connected in the biblical literature, especially, for instance, the book of Proverbs. I think about people of wisdom, I actually reference Cicero, the great Roman statesman, and when he was 84 years old, he was collecting um, records of antiquity, he was writing, he was studying Greek, he was gardening, he was speaking in the Senate, he was doing all of these things, because he was a person that had a, a purpose and a mission, but he was also a person that everybody looked to for wisdom in that community, and I think aspiring to that uh, is good and beautiful, yet oftentimes difficult. One of the key things that I think is important is not only what books you read or what you listen to, it's what communities you, tr- you decide to join in. Uh, Proverbs says, he who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Uh, and I think there is opportunities to join all sorts of communities. Uh, some as companions of fools, but there are communities of wisdom as well. And that could mean starting a course of studies. It could be a small group. It could be people at church, but really figuring out who am I going to surround myself with Who do I want to become in 5, 10, 15, 20 years? It's a really critical piece of wisdom.
2: Mm. Well, there's so much more in your book. I love the chapter on hope because there's a lot of fear surrounding this season of life that has so much uncertainty. There isn't the same structure as uh, one experiences during the younger years. Again, the book is titled An Uncommon Guide to Retirement, Finding God's Purpose for the Next Season of Life. I appreciate so much your writing. Uh, The book, I know you focus a lot on the intersection of faith and work, but retirement uh, being uh, one of the elements that you're covering, I appreciate the resource and hope our listeners will take full advantage of it as they anticipate or find themselves in the midst of retirement. Thanks so much for joining us.
3: Thanks,
1: Georgine.
2: Bye bye. By the way, the uh, book is published by Moody and is available in bookstores. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as a loyal Oregon Duck, I was thrilled to hear about the ex Oregon football star who stopped armed student. Uh, at uh, Park Rose uh, High School this past week. He was a former college football standout at the University of Oregon, and he's been credited with uh, his courage last Friday when he tackled an armed student uh, at Park Rose. Uh, Kenan Lowe, some of you might remember his name from football, a football and track coach and a security guard at Park Rose High School, told reporters as he was leaving a police interview late Friday that he was tired uh, but relieved at the outcome. There was no other suspect. Police declined to release the student's name and said they're still trying to determine if he fired any shots. They probably have resolved that by now, but there are no other suspects. Um, I'm very um, I'm just happy everyone was OK, Lowe said, as he walked out of the school about four hours after the incident, according to the Oregonian. I'm happy I was able to be there for the kids and for the community. Now, he served as a coach, football and track, but also a security guard who actually stepped up to provide security to those students. Lowe didn't reply to um, inquiries for further details on some of the other social media platforms, but Park Rose School District Superintendent Michael Lopez-Sorara said in a letter to families on Friday evening that before the incident, two students had informed a staff member of concerning behavior by that student. Now, this is what you need, students who are willing to speak up to authorities and say, we're concerned about something that's happening here and they were able to prevent what the worst-case scenario might have been. Security staff then responded, found the student, and quickly disarmed him. Apparently he was uh, armed at the school. Thanks to the heroic efforts, all students and staff are safe, the, uh, the principal wrote. Well, the police spokesman said the uh, first responding officer found the gunman being detained by the staff member in the hallway. A firearm was recovered at the school. Park Rose was evacuated, and a nearby middle school was uh, on lockdown for several hours As that investigation unfolded, the high school students were bused to a nearby parking lot where they were reunited with their parents. And there's that very uneasy separation when you hear that an event uh, happened or was foiled and you're reunited with your students. Well, the outcome was the best case scenario. Absolutely. The principal said the staff member did an excellent job by all accounts. And the officers arrived within minutes and went right in. Students recounted how the student entered. Uh, Their government class in the school's fine arts building, separate from the main building just before noon, um, the uh, coach and security uh, officer had been in the classroom earlier looking for that student, whom other students identified as an 18 year old senior from the high school. About 10 minutes before the end of class, the student appeared in the doorway in the uh, in a black trench coat. Pulled out a long gun from beneath his coat, according to another senior who also was in that room. The student didn't point the gun at anyone. Students fled out the back door because the gunman was blocking the main doorway. Thankfully, there was a back door. Uh, Says one, as I was running, I was just like, Lord, don't let this be it. In college, Shiloh was a star wide receiver. And we're talking again about the football and track coach, who also serves as security at Park Rose High School. But at University of Oregon, he was a star wide receiver. He played from 2011 to 2014. He caught 10 touchdown passes in his college career, had nearly 900 receiving yards. He also saw playing time on special teams. After college, he worked as an offensive analyst for the San Francisco 49ers and as an analyst for the Philadelphia Eagles. He started working at Park Rose last year as the school's head football and track coach, according to his LinkedIn Profile. Before that, he worked for his high school alma mater, Jesuit High, where he earned State Defensive Player of the Year as a defensive back was a standout sprinter there. Well, students, parents and co-workers lauded his actions on Twitter, calling him a hero. Several also noted that the school's prom scheduled for Saturday was still on. So thankfully, the students were able to continue with their end of year rituals and celebrations. Um, One Twitter writer said that she um, coaches track uh, with Lowe at Park Rose and wasn't surprised to learn what he did. This apparently was consistent with his character. As soon as I heard she writes what happened, I knew it was him because he would do anything for these kids. It was surreal to be waiting for my athletes behind caution tape today but might have been much worse if not for Keenan, she wrote. Well, Lopez Serraro, the principal, said the student with the gun will not be returning to school and that school will resume as it did today, as usual, with an enhanced security presence. So kudos to this track coach, football coach, and security officer who did what he was supposed to do and managed to prevent what might have been the worst-case scenario with an armed student wearing a trench coat, staring into uh, some of his peers in their classroom. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're going to uh, talk with Bob Riken. He is the vice president of Christian Mission Advancement, and he's a chaplain at the Columbia Willamette YMCA. Now, as you've probably been hearing, if you're listening, you've got your ear to the ground. The YMCA is working very hard to restore Christ as its center, Young Men's Christian Association. There's also the YWCA, but that C had sort of been muted over the years. Well, the determination now is to uh, restore that to its former glory. So we're going to talk with um, Mr. Reichen about that on uh, Tuesday's program on Wednesday. We'll be joined by food for the poor for our annual radio thon. So we're looking forward to giving you an opportunity to hear details about a crisis in Haiti that, quite frankly, you're not hearing much about. I think sometimes people wring their hands and throw their hands up when it comes to Haiti because there's always a crisis there. This, I'm being told, is the worst they've seen to date. So we're going to tell you more about that and how you can come alongside and help them in their effort uh, to provide the resource that those who are suffering so desperately need. On Thursday, we'll talk with Sid Brestel, author of God in His Own Image, loving God for who he is, not who we want him to be. Sometimes we morph him into a character very much like our own so that we can, um, I don't know, relate more, uh, more closely. We'll talk more about that when he joins us on Thursday. And then on Friday, all things being equal, we will look at the lighter side of the news. We'll also give you some of the headlines uh, of that day as well. So that's our lineup for this week. Well, I want to thank James Blinn for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Really appreciate it. Have a great night.
1: Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast.